Time was, when people went away to seminary, it was a pretty homogenous place in terms of gender, age, and supposed sexual orientation. No longer. In fact, one of the most notable changes has been the number of people going back to seminary later in life. When I entered seminary, the average age was 38, and I was 38, so I was right on target. I don't know what it is today. One such seminarian I remember I referred to as Mac the Lawyer, and I met Mac in the parking lot early in the first semester. I pulled up in my old pickup truck, and he purred into a spot near me in his brand new caddy. He was about 50, he wore a suit in September in Claremont, and he always had leather braces on. He had different ones for different days. He had a cigar case in his suit pocket, and he complained to me on his way to class that they won't let me smoke them on campus, for which I was very grateful. <laughs> Max sat in the front row with his briefcase on the table in front of him, eagle-eyed and by all appearances just waiting for his opportunity to cross-examine the professor. Mac wanted to try his hand at being a pastor when he got out of seminary, and he lasted a very short time due to an explosive temper and I think an inability to separate a courtroom from a sanctuary. But his main goal was to take what he learned in seminary and bring it back to the juvenile justice system where he had become involved in some pro bono work beyond his career as a trial lawyer. In fact, he had become more and more involved in helping to turn around the lives of at-risk youth. This was his ministry. This was something at which he was very good. There are many people like Mac, mostly, mostly less colorful, some perhaps more, who find themselves in seminary searching for another dimension to their work and to their personal sense of ministry every year. While I was preparing the sermon for last week, I found this example for today in Homiletics magazine of a man named Tom Chappell. Have you ever heard of Tom Chappell? I think you will in just a second. Uh, Tom Chappell, of whom the magazine editors call a spiritual pilgrim of the capitalist persuasion. Chapel was the CEO of the all-familiar, all-natural toothpaste makers known as Toms of Maine. Now have you heard of Tom Chapel? When he was 43, he took his very small idea of this all-natural toothpaste and he turned it into a company which he moved through a period of real growth, building other products out from the toothpaste until it was a household product all across the country and he had become very, 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 very rich from this product. But rather than feeling fulfilled or satisfied from what he had done, he confessed to feeling spiritually and emotionally very drained. He was advised by colleagues to sell his business and take a long vacation, buy a boat, go out on the sea, do whatever he wanted, and then if he, if he chose to, he could start another company or not. He didn't have to do anything again. But instead, Chapel found direction from a question his pastor's wife put to him at his Episcopal church in Maine. She asked him, what makes you think that Tom's of Maine isn't your own ministry? 
And so what the CEO of this successful company decided that he would do was to stay with his company, but also to further enrich himself by going back to school. And so he applied to Harvard Divinity School, which so surprised the admission office that they only agreed to allow him in provisionally for the first semester. But Chapel proved to be such a good student and he worked it out with his company that he would spend half the week in Cambridge, Massachusetts as a divinity student and the other half in Kennebunkport as the CEO of his company. And the business ran so well while he was away, explains Chapel, that his co-workers suggested that he just stay at the seminary and pray. <laughs> stay and pray. Sometimes that's all we need to do. And so he did. He graduated with his master's in the theological studies, and several years later, Chapel asked the professor he trusted most to come and work with his company. He wanted a Harvard Divinity professor to be the guiding hand in creating a mission statement and a business plan for his multi-million dollar company so that it would be based on the moral and ethical principles that best reflected his understanding of his own strong New England faith. According to homiletics, as a result, Toms of Maine promised to honor its commitments to all of its stakeholders, including employees, owners, vendors, consumers, the community, and the environment. The company also adopted a plan based on a concept put forth by the theologian Martin Buber that committed the business to start a series of three partnerships each year that promote the common good, such as serving America's rivers, community gardening, and support of a local dental clinic for the poor a business plan that brings in the theologian Martin Buber. Had never heard of this before. In short, Chapel challenged his company to decide what sort of a business it would be, one driven by the bottom line or one with an allegiance to other values. Like Mac the lawyer and countless others in actual corporate positions with no intention of leading, leaving the world of trade and commerce, these people have enrolled in divinity schools seeking personal direction as well as input for importing the values and ethics of faith into their own commercial dealings. And I think it's an encouraging development. In today's text, the aging leader of the Israelites is challenging his people to decide what sort of community they would be now that they had a homeland. The people of Israel are now residents of Canaan, and according to the book of Joshua, the conquest is complete. The land has been divided among the tribes, and so we leap forward to the final chapter and the people gather at Shechem, not, not too far north of Jerusalem, where there was the site of this pagan shrine. And it was there that Abraham built an altar to commemorate his meeting with uh, God. And it was here Jacob, returning from Haran, set up a camp and bought land and erected another altar. It was here that Joseph was buried. And our reading describes a treaty between God and the people. And those that were gathered there that day were given a choice they were given a choice as to whether they would worship God or they would worship the local gods, the gods of their ancestors, such as Abraham's father did. But Joshua and his household elected to serve God, and the people, recognizing all that God had done for them, elected to do the same. They may also stay on the other side of the Euphrates River, though. The choice was theirs. 
And in the passage, there are those well-known words, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's a comforting slogan. It's been used as a motto. I've seen it in people's homes. It's quite lovely. But the edginess of the intent of those words is made sugary in the absence of the beginning part, which is choose this day whom you will serve. In other words, the choice is real. The choice has consequences. It either keeps us moving forward as a gathered community into the future or it sets others of us apart on the far side of the river, choosing and believing and serving the old ways. It's a time when people gather and choose to find a theological home together with a broader understanding of what or whom their God is to them. They reject the smaller household gods, the cultural gods, the gods that made so one-dimensional because they never stood up to any questioning. And these people have been asked now to choose this day whom they will serve and to cross over the river into a new community, into a new sense of being, into a new way of understanding what it means to be a community and to live together. And Joshua asked them to decide to whom their allegiance would be given. Joshua couched that challenge to a, a question about commitment, choose this day, whom you will serve, will it be the old ways, but me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And the people responded, they will do the same. And of course, the challenge that Joshua issued to the Israelites also confronts all of us here in this room. Whether we're a captain of industry or a private in someone else's business, we still must choose whom we will serve and what kind of people we're going to be. That choice is going to affect all of our lives, including how we function on whatever rung of the ladder we find ourselves. And so I thought in this regard, the story of Tom Chapel and Toms of Maine is an instructive one because it shows that making a profit doesn't have to be the only mission of business. It doesn't have to be the only driving force in our lives. Laia Greenfield is a professor of sociology and political science in, at Boston University, and she contends that the desire to make increasingly more money is a fairly recent and localized phenomenon. In her book, The Spirit of Capitalism, she says that for most of history, economic growth has not been the primary goal of trade and industry. Rather, she says, the desire for status is what drove business. People work to gain respect and they work to gain admiration. She says that as nation states emerged in the 17th and 18th centuries and especially in the 19th century, patriotic fervor affected the attitude toward making money. People wanted their country to be well thought of and one way to make that happen was for their nation to be a place of economic prosperity. And that nationalism began the shift to see the bottom line as the main line and reason for being a business. But other factors have motivated the workplace as well. Greenfeld points out that many leaders who have built the American economy actually lost money in their schemes, but they proceeded anyway, pushed by the desire to create and to be seen as creative people that that was actually what was more the driving force. And what's more, in early America, many people had the sense that when they were labored, laboring, they were actually out there rowing for heaven, in the words 
of the Puritan minister Cotton Mather, one of ours, by the way. <laughs> oh, we have a Puritan past. You wouldn't know it looking around you, would you? And so prophet was beside the point. But however we got here, profit is not beside the point in our places of employment today. And all of us who labor or participate in the creation of wealth for somebody, a few of us like Tom Chappell are in the position of corporate leadership and can shape the stated values and goals of our workplace, but the rest of us seldom have that option. And most of us have no choice about whether or not we will work. But nonetheless, we have the same challenge Joshua put before the people, which is, what kind of people will we be? And to whom will we commit ourselves? And the answer to that is not a secondary decision in any way, because most of us spend the major part of 250 days every year at our place of employment. So when we decide what our values are as workers, we are actually talking about how will we live our lives. And while we may not be able to influence the corporate mission where we work, we can and should make the personal decision about how our own sense of Christianity will play out in the workplace and play out in our lives. At the minimum, that decision is this. I will be a moral and an ethical person, committed to following Jesus. And its corollary is, I will accept the consequences of being moral and ethical. But a third part of that decision is one that Chapel made in response to the question from his pastor's wife. He decided that his work would also be his ministry, and we can decide to do the same. My work, whatever it is we all do, my work will be my ministry. One person put it this way. In a job, you give something in order to get something. In a ministry... You return something that has already been given to you. A job depends on your abilities. A ministry depends on your availability to God. Joshua had made himself available to God all his life long, and nearing the end of his life, he was about to change direction. He suggests that ministry and meaning are all about making choices. And Joshua, he just, he doesn't make it too complicated. He simply says, choose this day whom you will serve. Amen.